when will we finally discover another Earth-sized world orbiting around a sun-like star within the habitable zone of its star, like place that there could be life. And it's going to be a while. That's because the light from the star is so bright, you have to be able to block it to reveal the planet beside it. That's in the visible wavelength. It gets a lot easier in the infrared wavelength. And so a new NASA grant has been awarded to Dr. Heidi Newberg, who is a researcher at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And her proposal is called the Diffractive Interferro Coronagraph Exoplanet Resolver or DICER. And it involves this really interesting quirk with physics where you can use a grating to diffract light into a telescope and the telescope isn't pointed directly through the grating, but actually at a angle. And so you get a very specific wavelength of light coming through the grating and into the telescope. And hopefully this will allow a telescope that's relatively small to be able to reveal a planet orbiting around a sun-like star. It's a fascinating concept, has some technical challenges to overcome. And yet if it does work, could be an important new tool for future space observatories. All right, here's the interview. How tricky is it to observe the Milky Way? I mean, like we're stuck inside of it. It's like trying to observe your house from the from the inside. Yes, um, my students have said it's like trying to make a map of New York City by standing on a street corner. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it is, it's one of the last, I mean, so before uh, surveys like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey and two mass and the surveys that have done the whole sky and now and most recently the Gaia satellite uh, to that surveyed the whole sky, uh, we weren't really able to study the Milky Way very well. And when I started working on it in the 1990s is when I started uh, started uh, working on it myself, we really didn't know very much about the Milky Way galaxy compared to what we knew about other galaxies. And that's just because you can look at other galaxies in one telescope shot. You just shoot right at it and you get the whole thing. You get the whole picture of it. Um, but for the Milky Way, even finding out what kind of a spiral galaxy, how big is the bar, how many spirals do we have, anything about the Milky Way has been hard to, to do because you need to get the whole sky. And we've only recently been able to do that with these big surveys. And now we can build up a picture of the Milky Way star by star. Right. Um, and put it together and then be able to see what it looks like. So we have a much better idea. Do you, uh, do you think we're normal? As the galaxy? Yeah. Is yeah. the galaxy normal? Yeah. It's, it's a pretty normal galaxy, I would say. Um, in fact, we try to use it as an example of how galaxies form. Um, I mean, that's one of the things is that in the Milky Way, we can we can observe, even though it's hard to see because you have to look every direction. There are things you can find out about the Milky Way you can't find about, out about other galaxies because we see our galaxy in three dimensions and we see other galaxies in two dimensions. And that third dimension gives us a lot more information about how it dynamically works. And so I like to try to use the Milky Way and its dynamics and try to understand its history and how it formed so that I can learn about other galaxies and how they formed. 
And so I think it's a good example of, of a spiral galaxy and a good example that we can use to try to understand. We call it near field cosmology, you know, understanding how the universe formed the cosmological context of our universe by looking at things that are very close to us, which is not what they used to do. They used to only look at very distant things to understand cosmology. Now, you know, your primary research is in the Milky Way and and the structure of the, and I'm sure Gaia has been just a revolution on that. Huge. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. I think that's my favorite <laughs> observatory, my favorite mission right now. And I just, I'm just yep. like, it feels like every question you can ask is answered by the Gaia survey. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have to figure out the answers ourselves and that takes a while. Yeah. It's in there. <laughs> you know, I think it's in there. It's in there, but it might take a decade to get it out. You know, I, I have some experience with that. I uh, I was one of the, I was probably the first postdoc on the Sloan Digital Sky Survey years ago. And when the data from that came out and was public, um, we learned a, a lot about the Milky Way and, and lots of other subjects. Um, but I, the paper that uh, we published in 2015, where we found the ripples in the Milky Way, you know, huge, huge uh, result that came out of it. That result was made with data that had been publicly available to everyone in the world for a decade. And uh, so these huge results are, they're in these, these big databases and um, and it does take a while to figure out exactly what's in there and what the meaning is. And that's my expectation for Gaia as well, that we will eventually learn a lot <laughs> that we don't know already. I mean, it's interesting. It feels like there's a bit of a shift. Like in the olden days, people would book time on a telescope to answer a very mm -hmm. specific question. They would They would take their data, they would crunch it, they would produce a result, and then they would publish. But now with the rise of these giant surveys, there's so much information that's just been collected on mass, trolled out, of, you know, trawled from the from space itself, and now you just have to be a good detective to look through this data to start to to piece together the the clues. Does it does it feel like things are shifting to that model of astronomy? Oh, definitely. And in fact, so the the, the prototype experiment that caused that shift was the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, mm -hmm. and so. You know, part of what we were doing on that survey uh, was not just designing a survey, but uh, creating a culture and uh, a process in astronomy that allowed astronomers to work as big collaborations. I, I at the time I was at uh, Fermilab, and Fermilab is a particle physics laboratory where they have been doing huge particle physics uh, collaborations for a very long time. Um, but but until the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, astronomers are usually, you know, me and my postdoc or me and my graduate student, and we'd write a paper together. And astronomers, you know, had a completely different culture. They, they were uh, people who liked to go to mountaintops at night by themselves. And, uh, and so you can imagine trying to get people who are in that kind of mindset to work together on a big project. I mean, people didn't even know you know, how, whose names are we going to put on the paper? Right, you know? right. Am I really going to let my graduate student go spend three years writing software for a big project and not doing any science and how will their career work? I mean, these, these were all real issues that we were trying to solve. And that, and I think we did a great job. 
uh, as a collaboration uh, at figuring out how to work together and how that was going to work in this. And we did some things differently from the, the high energy physicists. Um, and I think that uh, all of the big projects in astronomy since then have kind of used it as a model for how it is that we, we do science as a group. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's talk about the, the telescope idea. So, um, okay. <laughs> I like, I've, the problem is, is that you're such an expert in these other fields that I'm really fascinated in, but, but I think we, you know, I'm, I'm all over the place. <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. Me too. So, but, but let's talk about it. So you recently awarded a NIAC grant for a pretty unique idea for a telescope. So can you explain it? The idea is, that in so I'll tell you that what the problem is. The problem in exoplanets and finding Earth-like exoplanets is that you would like to uh, look for Earths in the infrared. Why do you want to look for Earths in the infrared? Well, because the Earth is bright in the infrared. Um, that's what you know. Our black body radiation, our temperature, would cause us to emit light in the infrared, and the sun is bright in the visible. And so if you try to look in visible lights, then you have to, to um, then the sun is very bright and it makes it hard to see the earth because they're very, these, you know, exoplanets are very close to the star. Um, and then, but you also, when you look in the infrared, you want to also be able to resolve, you want to be able to see a picture where you can separate the star from the planet because even in the infrared, the sun is a million times brighter than the earth. So you need to be able to separate them in your picture enough <laughs> that you can block out the, the star that the planet's going around and see the planet that's going, going around it. Um, and you can do with a, your basic physics, probably high school physics, definitely the first year in college physics, you can write on the back of a napkin the equation for how big a telescope you would need to resolve a star like the sun from a, a planet like the Earth out to distances where we could expect to find such planets. And the answer is you need a 21-meter telescope. Right. And, that, and, and that's just the telescope not necessarily that's the, the diameter of the telescope. Right. And that's not necessarily the coronagraph that's blocking the light from the star. Right. That's a whole other problem. Right. But um, but but so if you look at James Webb, James Webb is a fa fabulous achievement. It took a very long time. Um, it had a lot of moving parts. They had to fold it up inside the launch vehicle and then unfold it and calibrate it and do all these things. That's a six and a half meter telescope. And uh the the uh, space community has pretty much come back and said, uh, no, we, we can't really build it bigger than that yet. Right. <laughs> so there's a there's a disconnect between the six and a half meters, which we can get, and the 21 meters we want. Yeah. Um, and I know that you with that. the decadal survey, sorry, with the recent decadal survey, they walked back from the Louvoir concept, which would have brought you into that range in the in the 12 to 15 maybe 20 meters, um, yep, which that's would be, why they wanted it. yeah, which would be wonderful. But, but now it looks like it's going to, whatever it is, it's going to be something in the same class as, as web, but with a different right. spectrum. Right. So, um, so there's that science that people wanted that, yeah, as Louvar was walked back, Habex was walked back. Um, and so there's, there's this like need for, for something that can do that job. But um, I, what was, you know, what, what people came back and said, we don't have the technology. Our technology isn't ready to do that. Um, maybe in the future, but not yet. 
And so this is an idea that kind of comes from a different direction with a new kind of technology that I'm hoping will be able to solve that problem in a shorter time scale, maybe less expensively. So the idea is instead of having a one big monolithic 20 meter telescope, we're gonna put two gratings, two diffraction gratings out there. And a diffraction grating, you know, like a, like a lens, it, it bends light, but it does it in a different way. Um, and they're very, they're flat. Lenses have to be curved. Diffraction gratings are just a flat piece of, you know, glass or any anything else uh, could be a reflective or a transmission grating. I think like a Fresnel um, lens, does that, is that sort of the same technology? A Fresnel lens is the same kind of technology, but the Fresnel lens is what we call a focusing um, optic. Mm, okay. And so it acts more like a lens. Um, what, what I'm talking about is one that will not focus. And so that's why we have to have a focusing element. So we put something that's like uh, an, uh, an infrared telescope that catches the light. So that the light comes in, it hits the diffraction grating, then it's diffracted off to the side. And then we put this focusing optic that catches the light that's coming off to the side that's diffracted through here and then focuses that to the focal plane. Right, right. And so we're collecting light over, um, so maybe two 10 meter gratings. We think maybe we can actually get it down to maybe two five meter gratings where this part of our proposal is to try to figure out exactly how big these gratings have to be. But um, but you can imagine, you know, folding them up and in a launch vehicle and then unfolding them, you know, in an easier way than, than maybe the James Webb, you know, it's just flat, flat things that have to go out. Um, and then we, then we catch the light with two of these smaller telescopes. And one of the things in our proposal is to figure out how small can we make them. Our prototype has two three and a half meter telescopes, and that's smaller than six and a half, but it's still pretty big things to put in a launch vehicle. Now, sorry, are uh, so, the are these multiple telescopes? Are they bolted together or are they free floating? Yes, no, right, it's bolted together. These okay. are this, yeah. So and I'm so, thinking like the large binocular telescope, as opposed to where you've got sort of two telescopes that are separated, but they are separated by an unknown amount, as opposed to like the an interferometer where you're you're floating and changing the distance. Yeah. <clears throat> so we we use an interferometric interferometric technique to uh, remove the light from the host star. So we have kind of an interferometer, but it's bolted on. It's not, it's not a free floating right. kind of interferometer. Um, and, it, and it isn't what's giving us the resolution. There, our interferometer doesn't give us the resolution. It gives us the reduction in the, in the light from the star. The resolution is coming from these gratings um, that are, that are, that are the thing that your physics will, it says there's a limit to how much you can resolve something. And they're, they're giving you that limit um, by floating out there. Now, you, um, when you okay. say floating again, are they, are they free floating separate from the, nope. no, okay. So the, so the whole thing. So I'm imagining a, 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 a space version of the large binocular telescope where you've got two telescopes side by side, and then ahead of them, there's a grating like a, like sunglasses for the telescope that is performing that process as the light's coming through. Right. So the one thing that, that we make that's a little bit different than what you're imagining is you would like to take, instead of the two telescopes pointing up with gratings over the front of them, the telescopes are going to be pointing at the gratings this direction. So here's the light okay. coming down, comes to the grating, 
they go this direction. And that's how, so if you had a five meter grating or a 10 meter grating and you wanted to put a telescope behind it and catch the light from it, it would also have to be five or 10 meters, right? But if you put the telescope on the side, then it can view this whole grating and be a lot smaller. I see. So the so the the grating, as you said, can diffract the light, right? And it's being diffracted into the aperture of the telescope, right? And and then you're taking advantage of some fancy physics to yep. to do this. So let's talk about the fancy physics because. <laughs> You know, this this sort of sounds like, a, you know, a little interesting to me, Not nothing that I've ever heard of before. So I guess yeah, what- Yeah, so it, it was a lot for me to take in when I started it too. <laughs> right. So I guess what are you relying on, right? You've got this grading. You say it can diffract. You've got your smaller telescopes that are pointed at a pretty severe angle, just getting some kind of incidence refraction coming from the grading. So what so what are the underlying physics, optics that's that's that you're taking advantage of? So the only the only um, optics we're taking care of is the diffraction from the gratings, and the focusing of the telescope, and the inter uh, interference from the two telescopes that we put together to get rid of the light. That's it's uh, all physics that people have used before, but have never put them together in quite this combination. There there have for uh, many. I mean, there's historical telescopes that used. Uh, a grism survey where they put a grating in front of a telescope. So you, they, 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 you know the thing where you just look, just put a grating right over the top of it. And if you do that, then it can spread the light from the star out into a spectrum. And in the focal plane of the te telescope, you get a whole bunch of uh, spectra of each object, you know, all on top of each other. Um, but if you don't spread the light out very much with this grading, then you have little short spectra of each object and you can get kind of a sense of what the what the spectrum of each thing looks like. Um, if you, instead of pointing the telescope up at it, if you move the telescope off to the side, then what the diffraction, uh, the grading equation tells you is that the portion of the spectrum that you will detect becomes much smaller. So we see a very, very small piece of the spectrum of the light from an object. And so uh, we we can get a very big uh, area um, collection. So we collect a lot of photons on this area, but then we then in the telescope we only collect a very small uh, wavelength range of the light from that from that. So we've done the the math for this, and um, you get about the same amount same amount of light from an object in the sky. If you take your small telescope and you point it directly at the object, as you do if you point it at this grating, hmm. you know, because the bigger the grating is, the the bigger the angle it has to diffract at, and the smaller the piece of the wavelength right. range that you get. And and so sorry, um, like I'm, so, so I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around this. So like like I know like if you're going to try to do this in the visible spectrum, we talked about that 21 meter telescope. And we want to do uh, the, in the infrared. Yeah, I know. I understand that. But but if you were doing it invisible and you're, I know, having to decrease the light from the star by like a billion billion to just get that that planet to be revealed. So by going in the infrared, you're changing that now. You merely need to dim the star by a factor of one million, which is vastly easier. And then on. And so I guess you know, you're decreasing the wavelength down to a very specific wavelength. So 
is it expected that there is a wavelength of infrared that's coming from the planet that is very specific, that is different from just the sort of the fire hose of, of infrared photons that are coming from the star itself? Is that, is that the key? No, that's not the key. Okay. So we, it, there, that may end up, we're, we're kind of exploring that as a possibility, although I don't know what the answer is going to be as to what we can get, but um, our current um, model doesn't rely on having specific, very narrow frequencies that we, we try to find. Um, in fact, finding a narrow frequency is kind of a downside. We don't want to get a very narrow frequency. We'd rather get a much larger range. Got it. But if we did that, we would need to get a much bigger telescope, and then we're back to problem one. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I know that, for um, example, like telescopes like the Sphere instrument on the Very Large Telescope is looking at the polarization data of planets, and mm -hmm. that gives you sort of a, a different way to, to detect them. But but I guess that doesn't really help you in the in the infrared. Well, it. That's not really um, an important part of our current, at least our current telescope yeah. design. What's important, what we're getting um, by putting the gratings out there is the diffraction limit. I mean, so by having something that's a very long grading, you get the diffraction limit, which gives us a resolution. So we get to separate the planet from the, from the star. That's the important thing that we're doing with the gratings. Right is getting that resolution and we need that because we don't have it then you you know again it's the uh firefly in a headlight and you can't see it right um, right i mean so. the, the difference sorry like the difference between <clears throat> the difference between say the the event horizon telescope that gives you that enormous baseline and gives you that resolution versus something say the square kilometer array where you've got a an enormous amount of total aperture that lets you see d fainter objects and, and it's that dichotomy, like, if you're going to have a large aperture, you get be able to see faint objects. And if you have a nice separation, then you get the, the, the resolution without necessarily seeing the fainter objects. Um, but are you still requiring a coronagraph? Yes. Okay. Yes, you still need a coronagraph because a million is a big number. Right. But it's only a million, <laughs> not a billion billion. Yeah, right. right. It's like ten billion. I don't know, a billion. Ten billion, billion? maybe. Right. Okay, all right. Um, right. Um, so, but it, anyway, it's a lot better to to look in the infrared. Anyway, so uh, right. So we still need the coronagraph, and we so, so we're, what we're doing is combining the light um, from one side, uh, one grating, with the light from the other grating, and we make sure that when they combine, they're out of phase, so that that's, so that the object that's exactly that we're exactly pointing at um, gets canceled out, and objects that are just off to the side actually they actually end up getting imaged double. <laughs> we see two images of something that's not directly in front of the telescope, um, but that's okay. Two images is is fine. So <laughs> it's then, better than none. I guess what <laughs> kinds of targets then can you find and observe with this so we're, version? We're, we're, our baseline science plan, that of course we're still working on this, is to look at the sixty or so stars that are that are um, uh, G G or K stars that are within ten parsecs of the Earth. Now, so what does that mean? So the the sun, our sun is a G star, at, and G and K are measures of their temperature. And the G and K stars are stars that 
live a long time so that that life would have you know billions of years to develop um and they're not they're pretty calm you know they're not shooting off jets of things and making the making the environment really difficult and you can be far enough away like an m if you have an m a very uh faint m star and a lot of people have been looking for planets around m stars because it's easier to see a planet next to a fainter star um but the thing is that to get to get the pl a planet that could have liquid water you have to be very close to it and and you have and and the star is has all these magnetic fields and it's shooting off you know storms and things and it would not be a lot of fun to live in uh, a, an environment like that so we're going for stars that are in some sense like the sun in that they're a nice place for for us to live um and so if we point it at those um there's about 60 within 10 parsecs and what is 10 parsecs is about is like 33 light years mm -hmm. um 33 light years the reason that we were kind of aiming for that volume is that uh no one really knows how many earth-like planets there are in the universe and if you go out to that distance, then the expectation is that we would find at least a few. Now, we don't know. Maybe we won't find any. Maybe we'll find 100. Nobody really knows how many Earth-like planets there are. But in order to have you know, what we think is a good chance of finding a few of these, these uh, planets we're trying to find, you have to go out to about that distance. And we would like to find all the planets that are close to us because, you know, what's if you found one, what's the first thing you'd want to do? you know, send a probe, <laughs> you yeah. want to send a probe. And if the, if the thing is, you know, a hundred light years away, then, then physics won't let you get anything back in less than 200 years. You can't even send a message and have them get it and, and respond. It would take 200 years. And that's, that's really too long for our human life scale. That's a like, different NIAC grant. Somebody else is working on that problem. Yeah. But you know, but if it's if it's like ten light years away, you could imagine, you know, communicating with it, you know, at some level. And um, and I mean, I guess getting a survey of ten parsecs around us and counting the number of Earth-sized worlds in the habitable zone of a G-type star gives you a representative sample for the rest of the entire universe. Oh, yeah. Yep, you would think. <laughs> yeah. And, and think. we don't know. <laughs> right. But but the point here is, is that once operational, this telescope should be capable of of directly imaging every single Earth sized world orbiting one of these sun ish like stars in our local vicinity. Yes, that is the goal. Wow. And um, <laughs> that is the goal. And th the second thing that we're trying to do is to also be able to tell if there is uh, oxygen in the atmosphere. Um, that part is where we're developing that uh, a lot. And we're trying to figure out um, if we can do more than that or, you know, what, what it would take to, to be able to, to make that measurement. But we would also like to say, and, and is there oxygen, basically? Hmm. Um, and that's one of the one of the main markers for life, because if you look at our our example of the Earth, it's our one example of an Earth-like planet that we use to try to extrapolate to what happens other places. But when life formed on the Earth, when you have photosynthesis, you make oxygen, and before that, you don't have oxygen. And so um, 
So that's like the uh, uh, something you want to know right up front. Is this is this going to be an Earth-like planet that has no plants, no life, no no photosynthesis going on? Is this something where uh, where life has already started? And you know that's going to be a pretty important uh, thing to learn as well. And so once again, like you are not only detecting the existence of the planet, but you're actually measuring the spectra of its atmosphere directly. We're not really measuring. Yeah, this this design, at least as it currently stands, because we're measuring, I mean, this is the, this is, there's pluses and there's minuses, mm -hmm. right? Um, we're only able to measure a very, very small piece of the spectrum at a given time. Mm. And I'm working on trying to determine if there's a way to use that very, very small piece of a spectrum to directly get a line that would tell us uh, whether there's oxygen or not. Currently, I'm not aware that we can do that because the because the the absorption line in the spectrum that we have to look at is wider than our spectrum. <laughs> right. So the absorption. So what, so what we're looking at doing currently is to take an observation in the middle of the line, an observation to the left of the line, and an observation you know, on, on either side. Um, so we take one measurement here, one here, and one in the middle. That's really interesting. Say, Did that, it go down the, or not there? That the spectrum of the absorption line doesn't fit, that it is it outside fit, of no. the out of the range yeah. of what this telescope would be doing. So you're taking advantage of the fact that infrared is easy, but on the downside, interesting atmospheric observations fall in other wavelengths that you're just not detecting. But I like the hack. Well, this, no, this, the, the, they're interesting. Yeah, it's in a broader, it's, it, there are interesting um, observations in the infrared, but you need a broader uh, wavelength range to see the whole thing. Um, and this, this uh, technology isn't, Right, it isn't possible to deliver that. Mm -hmm. um, at least the way we currently have it. I mean, there's a lot of ideas on the table, right, for how we might scan through different wavelengths. Um, people have suggested, you know, flapping this thing. I mean, there's all kinds of um, ways we might try to change the wavelength range, but we can only get a little bit at a time. Is basically the the problem. It sounds like this is the point of the NIAC. Grant is you're now going to spend that the next is the point multiple the months doing the math yes. and and running through the different simulations and trying to figure out what's the right what's the right balance. So so let's right. think about smaller versions and think about larger versions. So let's say that we had one target. Like say we just wanted to know if there were Earth-sized worlds in a habitable zone at Alpha Centauri. Okay. Do you think like would a smaller version of the telescope get us that but answer? That's that's something you can do from the ground. So I think that that um, that's too close hmm. to be to make this one useful. Um, but but I, so the thing is, um, the question is what it, you want to do one star at a time. Well, more more like like have show the feasibility. That's all. Like go after one target one exciting target with ah, a less so what's complicated the, what's the what's the technology development pathway yeah the bootstrap yeah so i've been thinking a little bit about that um i think maybe we uh the next step one of the next steps might be 
to uh, put something up as a CubeSat or a balloon project or something like that, that would put a smaller version up that could show the technology works by looking at, say, binary stars or, you know, something that is doesn't need the resolution of the larger or that doesn't use the resolution and doesn't need to go as faint as the larger version. And so you can imagine doing something like that as a technology um, uh, development pathway mm -hmm. to get to the, get to this kind of a thing. Like I know that NASA recently canceled the Sophia telescope, yes. but is that the kind of like, like is this wavelength of infrared that you're trying to observe? Is this completely blocked by the atmosphere? And so you have to go up into the high atmosphere or out into space. Right. Okay. Yes. So, so a, a Sophia with this grading might be a nice platform to test out this technology or balloons or sounding rockets or things like that. Something like that. Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. I think we just saved Sophia then. <laughs> we'll talk to NASA and, and get this telescope installed ASAP because this we wouldn't want to know about other planets. But let's talk about the yeah. so then then I mean you're talking about this one to do within ten parsecs, but but how big can this go? Well, it, it, that's an engineering question that we don't know the answer to because I mean we we're able to just draw a flat grating that goes out for a mile and that fits perfectly well in our computer software. Um, but then uh, the engineers have told us these things are kind of hard to build. <laughs> so have to, that's an engineering problem. Um, there, there is a, so there is kind of a, one of my collaborators, uh, actually the person who, who came up with the original idea for doing, um, for doing grading space telescopes is Tom Ditto. And uh, I, I got this idea from working on his concepts. Um, but his idea was eventually these gr grading telescopes, you'd be able to like roll up a grating, shoot it up into space, and then unroll it on some kind of space platform that is built in place, right? And so in principle, you can make this as big as you want um, and you don't have to fit the whole thing inside of a, a launch vehicle and have it, you know, a hundred meters or a thousand meters or whatever it is fit inside the vehicle itself. Uh, it just unrolls. Um, and so, you know, that's again, another, another big technology development, <laughs> which could come afterwards to try to figure out how to do this as it is now um, when we're looking at five or 10 meter long gratings, that's still an engineering uh, difficulty, you know, because you want to, you need to have the the lines in the grading stay exactly lined up over time. And you, know, you have to worry about temperature changes and how we're going to, I mean, we're talking about maybe uh, dividing the grading up into smaller pieces that can be um, moved to, to calibrate them when things expand or contract. And, um, you know, so there's, there's all kinds of engineering kind of in trying to figure out how to make the Dicer version work with the five to 10 meter gratings and how, how to make that, get that supported and flat and, um, and have the gratings all line up. And then if you make that work, then you can start to think about how we're going to roll something out and how we're going to have this thing built in space. And we're going to make something really big. But one of the, the things about space though, is that support is a little easier in space than it is on the ground because we don't have gravity. Um, 
So, so some things about making a big telescope in space might be easier mm-hmm. um, in the future, but right now, not. <laughs> yeah. Now, does <laughs> Where technology is there? Does making the grading bigger? I, uh, hard. I'm trying to like. Is it better to make the grading bigger or make the telescope bigger? So, if you make the grading bigger, what does that get you? Like, instead of it being a five meter grading, what if it's a fifty meter grading with the same size telescope? So if you have the same size telescope, but you get a bigger grating, then in order for the telescope to see the grating, you need to put it at a much more grazing angle. And so there's a, an engineer, another engineering question of, of uh, can you blaze the gratings so that you get a lot of diffraction at a particular angle that's very grazing? Um, but then the other thing is that you, you will get a much even smaller range of wavelengths from the object. So having a bigger grading, keeping this telescope the same will get you a higher diffraction limit and it'll allow you to separate a planet from a star further away. The, the planet farther from the star or the star is farther from us. So either, so a bigger grading will allow you to see a, planet that is angular where's angular distance from the planet is closer right so you're seeing mercury the angular so going so that's either a planet that's closer to a star or a planet that's the same distance but farther away got it okay so one would make the angle smaller right so i'm seeing a a mercury within the 10 parsecs or i'm seeing an exo earth at 100 parsecs right right okay all right and what if i make the telescope bigger but leave the grading the same the size. Telescope bigger, then you get more light from the planet. So I'm able to hopefully make better observations and of the planet. You get itself. more light from the planet, and you can make the angle that you're looking at it not as big. So you get more wavelengths. Right. I see. I see. I understand. Um, so there's a lot. There's a lot of. <laughs> yeah. Lot yeah. Of but I guess <laughs> like this idea of the grading as a. As a simple, like it is a simpler, like what you talked about this idea of having to sort of really be concerned about the the temperatures and so on. When you think about James Webb, I mean, it has the, these pistons underneath each of the mirrors that are deformable, and they spent months just dealing with the cooling temperatures of the telescope and get everything nicely optic and, you know, focused. So, I mean, I think we've seen space based focusing system is a grading simpler then something as complicated as the beryllium mirrors on JWST with its pistons and so on? Well, the, the, it's been put out there that it might be. I think we need to prove that. Yeah. Um, we are, we are, um, we would like to kind of bootstrap a little bit off of the James Webb uh, technology development that was able to do that kind of um, positioning and support and calibration of optical elements in space, I think some of that we might want to want to use uh, in order to do this. Um, but uh, but yeah, exactly how flat and how does the temperature change it and how will it be supported are not things we have right. solved yet. Well, again, part of the night grant <laughs> materials. <laughs> part of, yeah, that's what we're trying to we're trying to figure out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then, I guess, what is the deliverable? What are you hoping to deliver as a report to NASA when you're complete? 
what I would like to do is this is a very short grant. Um, it's over this year. So it's over by by the end of December, probably maybe November, December timeframe. Um, we have to be done. Um, and so we're we're gonna try to do is to have a an optical model of the telescope and that we'd like to use that optical model to to try to do some of these optimate optimizations like can we can we get the size of the telescope down and and can we get the size of the um gratings down and it's you know i think that um people who do a lot of space projects have basically said that with the two three and a half meter mirrors we're looking at something that would probably cost as much as the james webb telescope just just from just from looking at how big everything is, they think that's what it would be. And and uh, I would like to try to get it uh, the estimated you know back of the envelope cost down to closer to a billion dollars, um, which is a more manageable budget item. But to do that, we need to make the the elements smaller, and we have to show that even if they're smaller, that the concept still works. Um, the other thing that we'd like to do is to kind of push on what the science is that we can get out of it. Can we expand the the science um, output that you can get from such a telescope to make it? Um, I mean, it's pretty good science already. <laughs> you know, find all the right. find all the Earth like answer planets. one of the most important scientific questions <laughs> in human history. That's but, good. But you know, we we need to kind of run a scenario, an observing scenario and say, okay, if we had this telescope, how and we tried to observe these 60 stars, how long would it take and what would kind of data would we get and um are there any kind of gotchas that you would get from say our binary star is going to be a problem, you know, and is that going to screw us up? We don't know. And so we have to kind of run the run the the simulated experiment and ask ourselves, what actually do you think we can do and how long would it take to go through this whole science program? And are there other uh, science programs that really could use this that need to do high resolution in the infrared, for example? That was my other question. Oh. What else yeah. could you use this telescope for when you're not, again, solving one of the most important scientific questions that humanity's <laughs> ever asked? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you think about things you might want to resolve at high resolution in the infrared, things that come to mind are, you know, binary stars or centers of uh, galaxies that have active galactic nuclei or uh, star forming regions or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But um, we need to kind of explore what 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 could be possible in those regimes. Right. But you could go back through the list of things that Sophia has observed and just kind of say, could we have helped? Right. right. Yeah, I understand that. Um, well, it's very interesting. Now, before you go out, sort of back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation <laughs> about the Milky Way, you're working on a project where amateur astronomers can get involved. Can we talk about that? The Milky Way the Milky at Way home. The Milky Way at home, yeah. So, um, I Milky Way at Home has a long history, and it was originally created to solve a problem we're kind of having in science across the board, which is that um, once you have a lot of data, and there are a lot of sensors out there now in every area of science, you have a lot of sensors that are taking just a lot of data. And then you have models that you're trying to fit to the data. If you don't have very much model, very much data, you know, you can probably fit all the data that's in there with three parameter models. You know, very simple model will fit it because you don't have much information. 
Um, then suddenly when you have lots of information, and this was what I uh, was running into with the Sloan Digital Sky Server, I was trying to say, what shape is the Milky Way? And the Milky Way halo in those days would fit with three parameters. That's it. It just the whole thing, three parameters. And now we know that it's completely filled with streams and clouds and lumps and different components and all this kind of stuff. And now you need, you know, a lot of a lot of parameters. And it it's very compute intensive. It takes a lot of computer power to do an optimization with 20 parameters even. It just is, makes the problem really, really difficult. And so Milky Way at Home was originally designed to fit um, the spatial density, the space density of the halo of the Milky Way, just looking at the stars, how are they distributed in, in space, um, fitting 20 parameters at a time to strips of sky uh, that were, were observed with the, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And um, and so we did that and we've, we I, I have a student who's still actually working on that now to do some some data in the southern hemisphere that hadn't already been processed. Um, but one of the things that um, occurred to us that you know after having this resource of you know a petaflop scale supercomputer that's donated to you from people all over the I mean, literally every country in the world and some countries that aren't even part of the United Nations. I mean, there's every atoll, there's somebody who has crunched a work unit from Milky Way at home. Um, but just this enormous resource and, and our ability to use this enormous resource to fit parameters to data, we've kind of moved to, um, to trying to do a bigger problem which is to take all these structures that we've identified in density, you know, the tidal streams in the sky, and we'll run simulations of a dwarf galaxy falling into the Milky Way, being ripped apart, making a tidal stream, and, um, and then see if we can get that simulation to match the data that we have in the sky for that, for that stream of stars. And so we, you know, run hundreds of thousands of these simulations, try all different parameters, and then find the parameters that best fit. So I have a student who actually just graduated this past summer who was able to um, <clears throat> measure the shape and the mass density of a dwarf galaxy that fell in like three or four billion years ago and, and came into the Milky Way. And all that's left of it now is the stream of stars that got pulled out of it by the Milky Way's galaxy. And so we kind of... Um, we are able to go back and say what initially fell in and how much dark matter was in it and how much uh, stars were in it. And so we're working little by little to reconstruct where dark matter is in the Milky Way galaxy by running these. Because the streams depend, on it, it, it's getting more and more complicated as time goes on. The streams that we see in the sky depend on the dwarf galaxy that fell in. They depend on the uh, Milky Way galaxy and what the dark matter distribution of the Milky Way galaxy is. In recent years, we've uh, discovered that the Large Magellanic Cloud is maybe 10% of the mass of the Milky Way, and it's falling in, going past the Milky Way. And so its gravity also affects the, the shape and the disruption of these tidal streams. And so, and the bar of the Milky Way has some effect on it, and other dwarf galaxies coming around might have some effect on it. And so you can imagine how complex these simulations could get as we add more and more and more complication to, um, to what 
the the physics is that produces this this tidal stream structure that we see in the sky. Um, and so we're we're working hard to try to sort all of that out. <laughs> and so if people have some extra compute resources, do a search for Milky Way at home and and yes, join the collective. You can, you can contribute your computer time to us. Wonderful. Yes. Well, uh, Dr. Newber, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's a really exciting idea for a telescope concept, very different than anything else that we've ever seen fly in space. And yet, if things work out, it could give us some answers to how common are Earth-like planets in the universe, which is, yes, I, again, I feel like one of the most important questions that, that we can ask, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the answer. So when you have that number, would you let me know? <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> you can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at university.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the Interstellar Adventurers, and the Galaxy Wanderers. And a special thanks to George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Josh Schultz, and Andrew Gross, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.